This is A Voice, a podcast with Dr. Gillian Kayes and Jeremy Fisher. This is A Voice. Hello and welcome to the podcast, This is A Voice. This episode is called The Singer in the Room. Hello to the singer in the room. It sort of sounds like a, a sort of rather dodgy thriller, doesn't it? But we will explain what that means. I'm Jeremy Fisher. And I'm Gillian Kayes. So, what is the topic for today? Right. Well, this was my idea, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, I've been doing some sessions recently with uh, singers and teachers. Uh, and uh, the room, of course, is the Zoom room at the moment. Yeah, that's true. And quite a lot of teachers are using the opportunity at the moment to update their practice so that they can deliver better to their own students. Um, I, th- I think it's fair to say... Um, even now that many of us singing teachers came originally from a classical background, mm-hmm. and that is changing now, uh, and that therefore sometimes we have to have learn how to reuse our voice True. so that we can feel for ourselves what it is that we need to teach our students if they're singing musical theatre or commercial music styles. Okay, how important is it for the teacher to feel what it is that the student is doing? <laughs> For themselves? Yes. Actually, I think it matters quite a lot. And this is certainly what teachers tell me, because if you don't have a sense of what it's like in your voice, how are you going to form that trajectory? And I'm going to talk about trajectory in a minute. Mm. Hopefully I can pronounce it properly. (laughs) Um, How are you going to be able to form that trajectory when you're working with your student, if you don't have some idea of how it feels in your voice? I think this is a really interesting one because I actually do agree with you. Having said that, if you are a vocal coach with an instrumental background, you may or may not be able to do that. So I think this is one of the and the other differences. And we did a whole podcast on the difference between mm-hmm. the vocal coach and the, and the singing teacher. I think as a singing teacher, you really do, because the singing teacher is so geared towards um, voice building and voice development. Uh, whereas the vocal coach tends to be geared more towards musical presentation, shaping, phrasing, stuff like that. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's the whole business of whether you need to have experienced the sounds. And so many singing teachers that we work with say, I'm not going to teach that thing until I felt what it's like, mm. because I can't actually break it down myself and explain it until I know what it feels like. Now, what's odd is that I'm a vocal coach, but I also want to know what it feels like. So, um, as usual, I straddle the two camps. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let me go back to what inspired me to suggest this topic for this particular podcast. Sure. I'd given a couple of sessions over a a couple of weeks uh, to these singing teachers, and I came away thinking, well, what is it that enables me to hear the sound that that particular vocalist can make when she or he hasn't made it yet. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Let's just, can I just break that down? Because that's really fascinating. Mm -hmm. You are essentially um, extrapolating their ability from something they haven't done yet. Yes. So they might come to me and say, I don't really know how to sing high in my chest voice. I can do it on the low notes. I need to be able to get the sense of what it is to do it higher so that I can teach my own students safely. 
So you're not just talking about, oh, you know, you can sing in your chest voice low down, therefore I can help you to sing with in your chest voice higher up. What you're actually talking about is you can hear somebody singing and maybe the technique that they've got for that particular task isn't quite right. Mm. But you can hear not just how the technique's going to work, but you can hear the type of notes they're going to hit, even though they haven't hit them yet. And one of the instances I'm thinking of, it was a range issue. Right. I could hear after I'd done the work that I did with the, the voice, the exploratory work, mm. uh, that she would be able to do D5 probably in a chest mechanism, whatever we want to call it, whether we call it belting or a mix, I really don't care. But that was one of the goals. And it was the song also that was brought to the table uh, that she wanted to achieve. And we did get there. I could hear that she would be able to do a C5 without much difficulty. I wasn't sure if the D5 was going to happen, but it did. So I came away thinking, how did I know? Yeah, it's a really good Eek. question. Um, because for me, it's not an ought. It's not, oh, every voice can do that. Because in my experience, that's not the case. Mm. So... Uh, well, also, also the, the thing about the ought is that mm. it's very much, you know, all singers ought to. But what you were doing was absolutely specific to the singer in the room. Mm. Mm. So I can share with you some of the things that I did. I mean, obviously, I listen uh, at the beginning of a session what it is that the um, the singer in the room wants to get out of the session yeah. and uh, the difficulties or the thing that they have or the things they want to explore. And then I will. This is a completely new singer. I've never met before. Yep. I will test some things out. And usually, because this was quite an experienced vocalist, I didn't feel oh, I need to, you know, see what their breathing technique is or anything like that. Uh, usually I will explore how the voice moves through the range, its relative weight, um, the ease of loudness and quietness, where I think the gear changes are. And sometimes you have to check that out, especially on Zoom. Mm. Uh, and comfort, I think, is something else I listen to. I'm listening to the relative ease of the voice as it moves across the range. Well, I mean, your PhD was on comfort zone, it was so you it are was, definitely going to be listening for it that. It was indeed. And, you know, sometimes when we learn a new sound, say, for instance, you know, as a female, you're taking that chest voice-based sound higher up in your range it can feel weird, yeah. particularly if you come from a classical background. Yes. And therefore, some rebalancing is required. So I listen to the balance. I think that's what I'm listening for. What's the balance of that voice in that particular singer with the background of the training that they have and with the kind of music that they normally sing? And how could I rebalance it to meet the goals that that singer wants? So you're does not, that make sense? It does. Eek. You're you're not talking about a single balance, though, are you? No. You're not, you're not no. talking about the voice in balance. What you're talking about is contextual. It's a context. Yeah, and actually, I'm glad you raised that because thinking of the two sessions I've given recently, one was a coloratura soprano. Yep. And the other, a much heavier voice, and um, she revealed later in the lesson that she was more of a, she never knew if she was a mezzo or a soprano, what they call a, a Zwischenfach. Zwischenfach. Um, 
in between. In, in classical. And it was, you know, quite a heavy voice. And so the way that she sounded in her chess mechanism or a chess voice was very different from the other singer and very different from me as well. Mm. And that meant, and we can go to modelling and demonstration now, I think, that meant that when I was modelling for um, this particular singer, I had to use a much heavier sound to demonstrate the kind of sound that I thought she would produce around about, you know, A4, B flat 4. Okay, let's just unpack that for a moment. Otherwise, you'd hear my nice, neat little chest voice sound and it wasn't right for her. Let's just unpack that because, uh, and there's there's a whole thing in there which is so interesting, which is the difference between demonstrating and modelling. And we'll go to that in, in a minute. What I think is interesting is you... In order to, in order to, to get her to hear where you wanted her to go, you had to change the standard setup of your voice, even in a, in an area that you're very comfortable in, Mm -hmm. in teaching. Um, because if she heard you do it, she might try to imitate you and it would be too lightweight for her voice. And that's not just a feature of Zoom. I've had that when the singer is physically in the room. Me too. And I think this is really important. Um, folks, I've got a little bit of a frog. <clears throat> oh, green and tasty. <laughs> I hope we're not letting that out. That's going to be in the bloopers. I oh, think. I don't think so. I think that's going out. I'm going to have a water break. Excuse me. Demonstrating and modelling and the importance of the singing teacher being able to feel it in their voice. Yeah. I think we all know that there are some singing teachers that were great performers. Sometimes still are. Yeah, and maybe they haven't done any pedagogical training and they're out there teaching because of their performance background. (laughs) Maybe they have done pedagogical training and it's not very good. And the trap that a teacher can fall into in that case is, do it like me, dear. They demonstrate it. Yep. And the demonstration in itself is not a bad thing because well, it can allow the um, the the singer to hear the the finished product, the finished package. Okay, so when you're talking demonstrating, what you're talking about is the singing teacher singing it in their own voice how they would mm-hmm, sing it, mm-hmm. and what what the student then hears is the finished package in the singing teacher's mm-hmm. voice within the framework of the the, the relative ease across that vocalist range and their volume levels and all the rest of it. I mean there are some there are some students who are very keen auditory analyzers mm-hmm. and they will be able to pick something up from the demonstration. The difficulty with the demonstration and it's why we differentiate between demonstration mm-hmm. and modeling is that the demonstration is this is me singing in my voice and this is how I would do it. Off you go. Mm-hmm. And, and therefore you should feel it like I and feel. Then, it. Therefore you should feel yes. everything that I feel mm-hmm. and I will I'll talk I'll talk to you and I'll describe all the things that I feel. And if you feel those, you will be successful. That's not a great way to teach. No, it isn't. But I am going to say that as a singer who is now teaching singing, sometimes I need to do that, particularly if it's a sound that I'm not used to hearing from my singer. And I will say, listen, I've got to try that out in my voice. I'm going to tell you that what it feels like to me is this. 
Now, it may not feel like that in your voice. Okay, you're describing something slightly different. Mm -hmm. What you're describing is you doing it to work something out. Mm -hmm. You're not saying, here is the finished product, I want you to copy it. What you're saying is, allow me to analyse it by doing it, feeling it on my own body, in my own voice. I will then analyse it myself, come up with the bits that I think are relevant Mm -hmm. to you and give you an, an instruction based on that, that is relevant to you. That's a different, that's a, that's like a mid process. This is why I say all hail the singing teachers who are prepared to say, I need to feel that in my voice in order to teach it. Yes. And oddly enough, I will also do that. Um, particularly if it's something like a phrasing or a breathing issue or a tonal quality issue or a shape issue. And I'll go, just let me try that out to find out what you're doing. And I will actually do little comparison things in my, in my own voice to go, Oh, I see what you're doing. Okay. I see where you are. I see where you need to be. Um, so in order for me to get to change where I, my copy of what you're doing to get to where I want you to be. I have to change this. Let's try that as a change. Try this change on your own mm. voice and see what comes mm. out. So what we're saying is that singers, if we are teaching mm. or if we're leading a choir or something of that type, because singing is an auditory and a kinesthetic activity, and mm-hmm. uh, it's really important for us to be able to hear the sound and sense the sound in ourselves Mm -hmm. as part of the process. That's how we process our own sound. And therefore, we've got to do that kind of link between us and the student Mm. to process what they're doing. I think it's perfectly okay to say to the student, just give me a couple of minutes. I'm going to try this out. I'm going to analyse it and then I'll come back to you. Um, I do that all the time. So what I was doing, just get to going back to the difference between demoing and modelling. Right. You're, do, you're <laughs> doing, you demonstrate, but you also self-analyse, yes. and then you don't end with the demonstration. Uh, but then I model in the way that the student can understand and copy. Okay, now let's talk modelling. Yeah. Because what is modelling in this context? Well, go on then. Okay. Modelling in this context is... You've done all your analysis, you've worked out what's going on, you've worked out what the student is doing, you then change your voice, uh, or you, you, yes, you change your voice, because you don't want them to model you, mm. you change your voice to get closer to the sound that the student is making, and you do a, if you like, a reproduction of the student singing that. Mm. So you are not giving your version, you're giving something that's much closer to the student so that they can recognise it, mm. they can hear it, feel it, understand it. Um, and sometimes it's quite useful to do an almost exact repetition of what the student is doing and sometimes you just add a hint of something so in your case with the student you were talking about you made your voice darker and heavier Mm -hmm. and bigger Mm -hmm. uh, because then it was so much easier for the student to actually understand Mm -hmm. what you wanted for I also said what I was doing and why I was doing it Mm. And that was really important. I mean, it's it's sort of useful for me because uh, as a low voice, I very, very rarely work with someone who is my voice. Mm. So I'm mm. constantly having to morph what I do in order to get slightly closer to whoever the singer is. All those musical theatre tenors. Oh, bless them. You are a hero. Bless them. And the sopranos as well. <clears throat> so let's also talk about the joy of comparison because yeah. i think this is part of modeling you know because you've just talked about 
maybe you will model to your student how they are doing it and you may want them to change. Now, one of the really smart things we can do is show in our own voice the model that we want them to use and then compare it with something else Yes, that it's different. It's the joy of wrong. Get them to articulate what they hear and what they notice. Yep. Get them to do it in their voice. Yep. Because, you know, the, we have so little sensory feedback from our voice that sometimes it's very hard to make those subtle changes that we want our, our singers to do. Mm. But by contrasting and comparing... Oh, you get to know much more what yeah. you're doing. Then they begin to realise what they're doing and yeah. then they can p- begin to process their learning. I think the other thing that you've got to remember is that both of us come from a classical training background, mm. uh, me as an instrumentalist more than as a singer. Um, and I was only having a conversation about this with somebody last week. There is, I think, still a thing in classical training, which is whatever you're doing, it's wrong. Just do it better. Do it differently. Do it better. But whatever it is that you're doing it wrong. Okay, now you've just made a change. That's good. We're getting closer, but it's still wrong. Okay. And there's this thing about nothing is ever good enough. And do you know what? Uh, some of you listening may think, well, no, this this is this has changed now in our profession. But we do a lot of work with teachers. We do. And don't I gather it that it is still going on. <laughs> I don't think it's changed that much. Even with people who graduated fairly recently. And in a way, it's why we're bringing up the joy of wrong. Because when you actually give someone permission in the studio to sing something really badly... It is so freeing. And I've always said, I have said this for... They usually fail to sing badly, they? usually they? fail yes. to sing really badly, which is so funny. Mm. Um, I've said this for decades, that um, when you do something really wrong, whatever you think that wrong is, there is often something in the wrong that you do that is in fact correct and that you need. And what we do mm. by deliberately doing something wrong, really exaggerating it, is that you discover the golden nugget that is in there and then you can use it to improve. It's really fascinating that that happens so often. Actually, I think this is really important because sometimes when you get a, a new client, they come in with a list of things that they've been told they do wrong yep. or that they can't do. And so then what happens is that they're, you know, as they're working with their voice, they're spending a lot of time avoiding the things that they are not supposed to do because they're wrong. Yes. And that completely interferes with the um, the processing of the learning of the skills that they need. It really does. Because, you know, the brain is is now not getting its rewards because it's it's busy concentrating on the things it shouldn't do. Yes. It's when you focus on something to avoid, you end up doing it. Mm. Really fascinating. Because mm. the brain doesn't understand negatives. So it's don't think about the pink elephant. And instantly you're thinking of the pink elephant that you're not supposed to think of. Mm. Because you have to think of it in order not to think of it. And then you tie yourself in knots. Okay, right. Well, I'll just leave the elephant in the room with you, I think. Okay. Can we talk a little bit about sound outcome? Yes. Because we singers are, as I said before, auditory and kinesthetic beings, it's inevitable that we are going to be listening to, for sound and listening to sound. Yes. And I think the trap that so many of us fall into is that we hear 
our student or our client not making the sound that we want. I mean, that's what we work with. I mean, we look at the singer as well, obviously, mm-hmm. and we should be listening to what the singer themselves wants to achieve. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, we are working with sound. Mm-hmm. We haven't got a keyboard in front of us. We haven't got a violin in our hands. Mm. We're listening to the sound. And it's very easy for us to be sound outcome driven. There is, there's, if you like, there's, because um, I'm just thinking of industry sounds. People talk about industry mm. sounds all the time. And the musical theatre world is rife with, I must sing in the industry sound. And can I just say categorically there is not an industry sound there's about 300 of them so take your pick um where i think you where i think you do need to go is what's the context i'm back on context again as Mm. i often am Mm. um because if you are singing something let's take the classical world and you're singing a richard strauss opera there is a hefty orchestra going scraping and banging in front of you, going full blast. (laughs) I'm allowed to say that because I'm an instrumentalist. Um, And therefore, there is a certain texture of sound that you need to get through without microphone. Mm -hmm. So if you like, whatever your, quotes, industry sound is, it's got to be of the type that will cut through or get across that sound. Mm -hmm. And you could say the same thing in any industry that there is a certain sort of catalogue of sounds. Yes, I think that that's fair. Match. Yes. I think where mm. it gets really interesting, and in, in musical theatre, although everybody is miked to the hilt now, um, there are certain the thing about musical theatre is that because the focus is the words, the lyrics, the story, um, the character, the moment by moment uh, emotions, it's almost there's we've got more leeway in a way because if as long as that sound sounds like that character having that emotion, you can get away with it. So I think you know we must have shed loads of twang and we must have this and we, or we must, must have, belt this note. We must belt this note. Mm. It's like, uh, excuse me, have you listened to 15 performances of the same song and you will hear 15 different versions? They don't all sound the same. Well, not only that, but my belt isn't your belt. No, quite isn't, right. Isn't Adina Menzel's belt. No, my, my belt would sound very odd if it was your belt. <laughs> I think this is really, really important because just as you said, Jeremy, who I'm on a hobby horse here, um, <laughs> Uh, we we have industry sounds and we have them in commercial music as well, although there's much more leeway for individuality there. Uh, we are looking for certain kind of sound outcomes because they are the expectations of the genre. We're looking for sound catalogues, not sound outcomes. Yes, yes, good. Thank I'm glad you. you corrected me on that one. Yeah. Um, so what's important is that you customise that for the individual singer. Yes. Just like I did when I was modelling for yes. that singer because yes. her A4 in chess mechanism wasn't the same as my A4 in chess mechanism. Yeah. Neither, by the way, was her F5 when she sang something classical. Yeah. It was very different. The colour of it was different from mine. Yeah. And I think that, you know, whatever perhaps, you know, system we use, if we, if we use methods, because methods give us structure – and are therefore very useful to some people. Whatever system of um, sound analysis that we use, we need to have that awareness of that you could take six singers of the same voice category and the same age singing the same phrase. They're not going to sound the same. And hallelujah, they're not going to sound the yeah, same. Yeah, 
That, I mean, that's part of the joy of performing and, and performers is that, you know, you bring you to the room and we're back on singer in the room again. Mm. I had literally just had a thought, which is about different genres of music. And I'm going to, I'm going to look at um, classical, particularly operatic musical theatre and almost all contemporary commercial. Okay. Oh. So let's go here. Have and we let's got just, all day? Let's just explore this thought. And it is about when does the singer need to be, quotes, fixed in a genre, and when don't they? And this is to do with training. So if you look at the training for um, a classical, particularly operatic singer, that training period is long, mm. because this is all about, here are the, here are the sounds that you need to make. Um, they are absolutely specific. They're very finely balanced. A lot of the training is about getting that very, very fine control within this catalogue of sounds. And it also goes, um, you know, it, it usually starts um, in the mid-teens in, in the yeah. life cycle. Yeah. And the voice isn't really maturing until the mid-20s. Yeah. And that's another reason why it takes a long time, I yes. think. Yes, yes. And also, of course, it's acoustic. You go to musical theatre and what your what the musical theatre casting directors are looking for is the character making that particular set of sounds within this genre. And musical theatre is genre eclectic. Mm -hmm. So it will grab any genre that's going on at the moment and then write a musical on it. Mm -hmm. And usually you can have several different genres within the same musical. Mm -hmm. So if you like, there's a shorter period of training where you have to make these sounds and then there's more development about character. Mm -hmm. And therefore, there's more likely that it, it is not how you sound, it's how your character sounds. And since in every musical you are playing a different character, there's more leeway, there's more mm -hmm. development. Mm -hmm. Now go to CCM. Right. CCM is fascinating. Commercial, commercial contemporary commercial music in almost every genre. This is really fascinating because if you like, the the training period can be zero. Mm. I mean, you can get people just walking onto a stage, picking up a microphone and creating sound. Um, so although thankfully there are now, because uh, also CCM is about longevity mm. rather than the one hit wonder. What I think is really fascinating is that there is a very early and major self-development Period. Because it's about the individuality. It is about the individual person, the individual sound, mm. the individual style. And a lot of the early training is about finding your own voice, finding your own mm. style, finding your own niche, your own genre. What then gets fascinating is you find your genre, you record something, you have a hit with it you're pretty much then stuck with that genre mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. that audience loves you singing that mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. And it's a brave performer who then completely changes the genre because you will lose the audience that you've just gained. It also depends on your contract. Yep. Mm -hmm. So isn't that interesting that the fixed area in the training comes at different, or in, or in the, the, the performer's life, comes at different points. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I literally just came up mm -hmm. with that. So I hope you agree with that. If you don't, mm -hmm. just make some notes. Let us know. Can I just go back to the idea that six singers could be singing the same phrase? Yeah. And it would sound different. And the thing that I listen for is, does it sound like that voice rather than that sound? Yes. Do, do you yes. Do you see, hear, feel what I, I mean? I do. Yeah. I do. It's a, a, 
This is Suddenly about, it sounds authentic in that person's voice. Okay, this is partly about templates, mm. which is, here's the template that you have to fit. And you go, oh, I'll try and squeeze my voice into, into a size mm. 12, mm. even though I'm a size 16, because somebody has told me that that's the sound I need to make. And we go, well done, you're doing a really good job, but it doesn't sound like you. Yeah. Okay, so how do I, <clears throat> excuse me, how do we identify... What sounds like you? Well, I don't know. It's so it's so hard, isn't it? Authenticity is maybe in the ear of the beholder. I'd love to do a course on authenticity. Would you? I would. Okay. I would. I would love to host a course on authenticity because it's one of my mm. things. It's very interesting. Um, first of all, there are reactions that you have when you mm. go, oh, that that. That has an extra layer of something that I go, oh, yes, I recognise that. It Mm. has a layer of truth to it, if you like. Um, And some people are, um, some interestingly, some people can can take their personal truth. And a lot of musical theatre singers will do this. They'll take their personal truth and bring it to that character. And that's about bringing Mm. your life history Mm. into that characterization and what that character is going through. Mm. So that they can sound authentic in lots and lots of different musical styles within the theatre canon. What's odd is that they then don't often sound authentic in the contemporary commercial canon because that particular flavour of truth doesn't work. Mm, mm. It's a completely different flavour of truth. I've had some really interesting um, debates on social media where, you know, somebody's put up a, uh, a sound file and a video of a performance and uh, I've watched it and listened to it and I thought, well, that's not doing it for me because it's not doing the job of a musical theatre performance. Yeah. But the jazz singers in the group have said, oh, but this is lovely. I love how so-and-so and, you know, it's so emotional. I'm thinking... There's no journey. <laughs> <laughs> but that's context again, it which is, is it you is. know, what is the song designed to do? Mm. I mean, we are way off in a way, we're way off the topic of working with the singer in the room, but all of this well, is no, really good background. We're not, because the singer in the room in the room might want to be a commercial singer yeah. or a classical singer, yeah. or the singer in the room might want to be a musical theatre singer. So therefore, some of the decisions that we make together with that singer will change. Um, I'm going to bring the voice in. Simply because I want to tell... Well, you mean oh, the voice as in the, the, the voice. voice, T-A, capital T, capital V. Oh, you the mean the voice, show? The show. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, because we were we were um, judges on, on it um, a couple of years ago, and I... Th- we were coaches. Thank you. That. We weren't thing. judges. We it's, were not on screen. Uh, same thing. Same thing. We were judging. We didn't sit in the chair. Uh, but we sat in a chair and we judged, okay? Um it was really interesting. I had a, a spe- absolutely specific reason to, to bring that up. First mm. of all, um, loved working on, the sh- on that show. It was actually really interesting mm. to do. Mm. And we did a lot of the early stages of, re- of um, auditioning. And there was people would come in and sing essentially a pop song or a rock song or a indie song or whatever. And you would be able to go, you've had, class- you've had classical training, and you'd go, you're a musical theatre singer. You heard some of the musical theatre stylistic things mm. which didn't fit the indie. And there was one thing, one person that I thought, you're really good. I am going to give you one sentence to say. Uh, I'm going to say one sentence to you, which I think may make the difference, which is, I said to her, you're sounding too musical theatre. Mm. That was it. That was all I said. Mm. And uh, she, in fact, went through to the next round. And I got a note from one of the the coaches in that round to say, you said she was too musical theatre. I couldn't hear any. And I'm thinking, good for you, lady. That worked then. That worked really well. 
Yeah, it's really interesting that you can because we do hear this. We hear people recording um, CCM songs, and I'm going that there's a big range of styles that you can fit in for mm. that song, but even so, that sounds too whatever. That mm. sounds too classical. That sounds mm. too musical theatre. That mm. sounds too something. Mm. I'm done. I think we should listen to questions. <laughs> I have no more to say on this subject at the moment. We have two really interesting AMAs um, mm. for you. So let's do the first one. I'll just put these on. I'd love to know what to do if there are four or five singers, um, all with different personalities and maybe who all want slightly different outcomes, maybe have slightly different techniques. Okay, this is a question from Sam. It's a really interesting one. Now, we're, we're assuming that you're talking group singing lessons, Sam, group training. Now, there are two possible scenarios here. One is that you could be working in an institution where you have to work yep. in groups. The other could be that you're working in your own studio yes. and you have your, your um, singers in groups. My advice, if you're in scenario two, is that you put them in groups where they can sort of help each other with peer learning, uh, where they can sort of not completely match in terms of um, skills and um, aspirations, but where, you know, they can, they can learn by listening to each other and you can give them some, I hate to say generic because I don't believe in generic exercises, but there will be some techniques across the board that you will be able to do with them. You may decide that uh, one route for working with those singers will be that you'll choose two songs that they'll all work on and then they can listen to each other and it becomes a discussion point. Obviously, you'll need to customise keys and things like that. That no. that would be one thing that I would do and I think they, they they would really enjoy it. I want to pick up on that last bit, which is give them give everybody in the group um, the same song to mm -hmm. work on. And actually, rather than getting, you know, singer A to sing the whole song, singer B to sing the whole song, actually, you, um, you give them a line each and they mm. have to follow on from each other. Mm. Um, and match as much as they can, and then you you play games with this, which is you can draw straws. So you you know which order is somebody going to go in? You're so or we, mean. Or mm. you have um, you write the lyrics out on on pieces of paper, mm. and each person picks three pieces of paper, and they have to sing those lyrics as they come up in the song. Uh, There's all sorts of things that you can play with. They can do them in different ways, yes. can't they? They're yeah. sort of using using different emotions. Um, I by think, the way, I think it was Sam who was, suggested the jar. Um, the jar of emotions, which I absolutely love. Because we have a technique called answers on a postcard. We do. And um, Sam works with a lot of young singers. And yep. so she said, rather than getting them to come up with the... The emotional the, the, reason for the song. Or the intention of the song. Yeah. Uh, that she gives them different cards and they try things out. So and now I want to. If you're not using your own technique in that situation, Sam, put it into practice. See, now I want to start combining because I think this would be huge fun. Mm. Is that um, you? You go through once with the song and you get them to sing. Uh, each person sings different lines so that they have to create the song themselves, mm. and then you get them to pick the emotion card out of the jar and you do it all again but each person has to play the emotion that they're mm. holding mm. and that would be so much fun mm. to do because mm. it's, it's quite likely that somebody will get an emotion that absolutely does not match their mm. their lyric line at all and then they can have a laugh yeah 
Um, there's a second thing, if you like, which is if people are at different levels, first of all, that what we've just mm. described will work really well, whatever levels people are at, because it's a sort of joyous game to play with the song. Mm. But if you're at different levels, I think it's really interesting if you um, want to take a technique that and if if this you know if half the room can can already do that technique it becomes a reminder mm. and if half the room can't do that technique it becomes just a little teaching tool mm-hmm. and you just pop that technique in to teach to everybody as a group and everybody does it mm. um now you talked about peer learning and i think we should just unpack the peer learning thing a little bit go on then oh okay um <laughs> peer learning is where you get your students to, for instance, rate each other. Now, this can be tricky if you have some bitchy students, obviously. So you have to be fairly careful about how you set this up. But what I think is interesting is if you say, um, listen to the, listen to the student next to you and give them, choose a positive word that comes up for you when they sing. Yeah. Because this is about feedback. Yes, so you're looking for the positive. I think that's really nice. And actually, if you're working within an institution, that's something that you can use so long as that space is held for the group within an institution and it doesn't become a way of people... not necessarily being mean to each other, but you know, I'm, up, be- I'm better than the, I'm better than you. Yeah, one upmanship, one upmanship, yeah. which we want to avoid. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Phew. Let's have a listen to the other question, okay. shall we? So this is. Hi, Julianne and Jeremy. I'm absolutely loving this podcast. So my question is, if you have a student who you've worked with and they have aspirated, phonated, resonated, articulated, intonated, even intimated. But you know what? They still just don't sound great. At what point do you call it a day? <laughs> oh, a, my Lord. Such a great question. That is a corker of a question. When do you actually give up? <laughs> okay. You, I think it's really important for you as a teacher to know that there are certain goals that you will have. And I think that's okay. It's okay for you to have those goals because maybe you're working within a particular framework uh, of, uh, you know, you, you perhaps you run training courses, perhaps you put on musicals or something like that. Perhaps you don't like working with hobby singers, mm. you know, as a teacher, recognize that because it could be that the student continues to enjoy their sessions but they are not reaching the goals that you want for them. I think that they're not reaching the goals that you want. They might be reaching the goals that they want. Yeah. I mean, and I have advised teachers in the situation Mm. where they've been working with a student who just wants to sing songs. Mm. And the teacher, in fact, doesn't really enjoy that. Well, this is when you find a colleague who will be perfect for that student and you discuss with them moving moving them on. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important because you're not you're going to cease to get joy out of your teaching, which means you won't be doing it as well as you could. It all you know, also means you're to an extent maybe you're wasting your skills. So it is okay for us as teachers to have ideal clients that we want to work with, there is always another teacher who will be the best teacher for that client. Don't be afraid to to move them on. 
I want I want to break down because I, I want to break some some of that down because there is some stuff in the middle. I think mm. you've sort of gone to the end end result. Yeah. Um, the first thing I want to say is what is your job as a teacher? Mm. And in fact, as a teacher, you will have several jobs, and they may they may you may hit all of them in one client. It's actually unlikely. Um, but for instance, your job may be to um, help them improve. Fantastic. Mm. It may be that you are a pair of educated ears to allow them to sing to, and that's it. Mm-hmm. That may be enough. That may be all they want. Um, and maybe it's a combination of the two. Maybe, you know, they, they just want to sing to you, and then you go, well, maybe you could improve this, and they try it again, and they either do or they don't. But, you know, if you like, your main job in that circumstance is to be is to hold the space for them to sing. And that could be the only thing that they want from a singing teacher. And where Gillian went is, um, you know, you may not want to do that. You may want to work with people who are more motivated and therefore you pass them on. And I'm going, yes, that is the case. But there may be a case where you go, actually, if my job is to hold the space for them to experience singing and that's all they want, I'm being successful in my job. Mm -hmm. So in fact, my goal for them is not their goal. And that then becomes a a decision about whether you want to support them in what they want to do, which is simply to sing in front of somebody who understands, Mm. um, or even just to release some emotion when they open their mouths, which they may not have any other opportunity Mm -hmm. to do. And to experience music. And and maybe, um, I'm really glad you've made those points, actually. Maybe what you could also do if you have two or three people in that together. situation is bring, bring them, together. them together. And we've we've certainly advised teachers to do that. We and have. Do you know what? Those students then improve. Yes. They have more fun. Uh, you possibly earn more money per hour. Yes, that's always good. Yeah. And um, they get that that vehicle that they need. So um, in a way, we've sort of split off into two different answers mm. to Joanna's question, um, which is one is if you really feel that you are not getting enough to benefit yourself mm-hmm. from this student, it means mm. that you and the student may not be a good match, in which case you look around for somebody nearby mm. who who is going to be a better match. And in that circumstance that I've described, which is people want to sing to educated ears, one of the things that you can do is hand them to a vocal coach, mm. an accompanist, somebody mm. who can play for them, mm. not necessarily know as much uh, vocal technique as you do, but since that situation isn't really required, mm. they might do better with a pianist who or, will just play, play songs. Or someone who holds karaoke yeah. nights. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's, that's strand one. Mm. Strand two is actually to look at your own goals for the, the students that you've got and decide whether they're appropriate mm. or not. And some of them may be appropriate, but it may be that it's on a longer term basis mm-hmm. than you think. So they may be just very slow in absorbing stuff. They may may take them a long time to absorb stuff. And you're going, well, we did that last week. You should have got that by now. And it may take them a month or two months to get to the point where they go, oh, I understand what you're talking Mm. about. And there's a little side issue here, which is if your student doesn't get it, consider that you have explained it in a way that doesn't work for Mm. them. So explain it in a different way. And I think there are sometimes blocks that a student can have um, I'm digressing slightly here, but I can recall when... This this is the This Is A Voice podcast. We digress all the time. When I was teaching at the East 15 Acting School and and working in groups, you know, that there were some singers there who who were so scared of singing that they could hardly do anything. 
and I would work with them for a year and they'd have a few one-to-ones, 20-minute one-to-ones. Mm. And I do recall one particular person who went away and 10 years later she came on a course of mine that I was running. I was just doing a workshop. And I looked at her and I said, so when did you learn to sing in tune? And she said, after I left drama school. Whatever you did suddenly embedded and now I can do it. Mm. And that can happen too. Yes, that's the really long-term stuff that sometimes you don't even realise is happening. Mm. That's very nice. So um, That's a nice ha- moment to end, isn't hopefully, it? Hopefully, Joanna, that, you know, we've given you comprehensive um, ideas for that mm. one. I think mm. it's a really fascinating question because there are sometimes people that I go, we don't work together, we don't mm. fit. Or even um, you've moved on and I need to move you to somebody else or I've moved on and I need to move you to somebody mm. else. You could be making a difference and not know you're making a difference. You could. So um, that sounds like a nice place to I think it's a good place to stop, yes. Uh, I'm going to say that today's episode is sponsored by Vocal Process, and Mm. we have a featured resource today, which is webinar four, Finding the You in Every Song. And this is um, a downloadable streaming video, which is um, an hour of Gillian and I uh, showing you various exercises, chatting to all sorts of things. We analyse five completely different song performances, two songs, Mm. five performances, completely different and what makes them work and what and makes them successful. And they're different genres, aren't they? Uh, the two songs are different genres, but interestingly, the singers of each song are different genres mm-hmm. as well. So they're coming from different backgrounds. Completely. Mm. Um, and we also give you five things that matter most to you when you sing. And mm. what's fascinating about this is when you choose one of them that may not be the one that you love the most, it will change the way you sing the song. So I'm not going to say any more than that. Check out... Uh, webinar four, finding the you in every song, and that's on https colon slash slash store dot vocalprocess dot co dot uk slash webinars, and that link will be in the show notes at the end. I'm going to say to you as well uh, to remember to subscribe to this podcast on mm. your favourite platform. We are listed on. Here we go. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Deezer, Spotify, Podcast Addict, Podchaser, Listen Notes, Overcast, Pocket Cast, Castro, Castbox, and iHeartRadio, and probably some more that I don't know about. Uh, check out the YouTube channel as well, Vocal Process, uh, youtube.com slash vocal process, because we are videoing these podcasts. Now, I don't tend to put the videos out until several days after we put the podcast mm. out, but the video will be there so you can see the faces that we pull at each other. Um, and the strobing on my outfit today. Yep. And um, uh, and also subscribe to our newsletter, which is vocalpresses.co.uk. And finally, download your free Build Your Own Tilting Larynx template on vocalpresses.co.uk slash build hyphen your hyphen own hyphen tilting hyphen larynx. Um, that's fun. We view, we actually use that still in our uh, courses. We're running a course next week that we're going to be using it in. We've sent it out to people. So, yeah. But it's full. Yeah, sorry. Course is full. Can't come. <laughs> we're not doing it again until 2021. Mm. Um, so, we are done. We are done. Great. And we'll see you and hear you and talk to you next time. Yeah, look forward to your feedback. Yep. This is a voice. 
a podcast with Dr. Gillian Kays and Jeremy Fisher.